From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. With the president's signature on a new energy bill, companies stand to gain billions. But what's in it for energy consumers? This is the government rewarding consumers for taking the patriotic step of buying higher fuel economy vehicles. At the same time, there's more than twice as many tax breaks going to an oil industry that's currently reaping record profits. A user's guide to the energy bill. Also, Western ranchers face new realities on the range. We have to learn to share with the public. If we don't, we're not going to be here. There's a lot more public than there are us. And I think we can both be on that landscape and both use it. Those stories plus bug spray from bird feathers and the final word on the ivory build. Yes, it's for real, so don't knock that woodpecker. This week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley studio in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. Well, it took nearly five years of trying, but President George W. Bush now has one of his top legislative desires, an energy bill to sign. The president says it will set the country on a course to meet growing energy demand. Critics call it a big industry giveaway that will do little to reduce our dependence on oil or lower gas prices. With nearly $15 billion in tax breaks, there's no doubt energy companies will benefit. But what about energy consumers? What's in it for you? Well, David Friedman has gone through the energy bill looking for perks for the consumer. He directs research for the Clean Vehicles Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Mr. Friedman, welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, thank you very much. Well, let's, uh, let's start with cars. Uh, what's in this for uh, average Joe or average Jane who's out on the car lot looking for a new car? Well, if you are in the market for a new car, especially a high fuel economy car, Congress has provided for tax credits for new hybrid electric vehicles. These credits are going to range from anywhere from $250 all the way up to $3,400, all depending on the fuel economy improvement of that vehicle. Now, a tax credit is better than a tax deduction, right? A tax credit is much better than a tax deduction. It's worth what it says at face value. So if you qualify for a high fuel economy vehicle that gets a $3,000 tax credit, that's $3,000 off of the sticker price of the car. This is replacing a tax deduction that's currently on the books for hybrids. This year, that tax deduction is about $2,000. But because it's a deduction, it's only worth about four to $600 in your pocket, depending on your tax bracket. Um, now, you know what they say, the, the large print giveth, the small print taketh away. Is there is there fine print here we need to be on the lookout for, some kind of uh, a limit on how many of these can be taken advantage of or, or something along those lines? Well, that's absolutely true. There is a limit that Congress did put on the hybrid vehicle tax credits where automakers can only sell about 60,000 of the hybrids per manufacturer before they start phasing out. Sadly, what this does is it rewards automakers who are late to the party. Companies like Honda, Toyota, and Ford, who are selling tens of thousands of these hybrids already, they're going to hit the cap within six months to two years, whereas companies like General Motors and Daimler Chrysler, who haven't even put any real hybrids on the road yet, are still going to be getting these credits well into 2009. That means you could walk into a showroom and get more money back for a GM hybrid that gets lower fuel economy than a great Toyota Prius, for example. Hmm. Uh, Any idea why it was put together that way? 
Well, it seems like a mix of a couple of things. Part of it, I think, is good old honest attempts to uh, protect GM and Daimler Chrysler and, and to try to give them a little bit of a benefit uh, to compete against what's happened with Toyota and Honda. On the other side, I think they that Congress just decided they didn't want to spend as much money on this, which is really too bad. This is the government rewarding consumers for taking the patriotic step of buying higher fuel economy vehicles. At the same time, there's more than twice as many tax breaks going to an oil industry that's currently reaping record profits from your and my pocketbooks. Um, switching gears slightly, pardon the pun, um, but uh, if, if I want to improve the, the fuel efficiency of my home by, let's say, better, more fuel efficient appliances, what's in there for me? Well, if you're interested in more fuel-efficient appliances, which you should be even without a tax credit because they're going to save you money on your electricity and natural gas bill, you can get a credit of $100 to $175 for things like high-efficiency dishwashers, clothes washers, refrigerators, and other items that meet minimum efficiency standards. And is there incentive for better insulation and, and things like that? There are incentives to effectively upgrade your home to create more energy savings when it comes to things like putting in insulation, better windows, more efficient furnaces and hot water heaters. There you can get a 10% tax credit with a limit of 50 to $300 depending on the item and then an overall cap of $500 on top of that. Now, is that really uh, that big a deal? Because, I mean, it seems to me that uh, most newer homes are are already pretty well insulated and, uh, you know, the construction codes have have changed to to encourage the stuff all along the line. Was that really that big a step forward? Well, it is. It's definitely an important step forward because construction codes have changed over time, and that means the older houses that are on the market have too little insulation, windows that let too much heat in and too much heat out, and boilers and hot water heaters that just waste a lot of energy. So this is an important signal from the government that you've got to upgrade your appliances, you've got to upgrade your home, uh, but sadly it's only a two-year credit. Hmm. Now, if someone wants to go solar, what's, what's the incentive there? Well, there's an incentive to put on solar hot water heaters or solar panels that can generate electricity on the roof of your house. These are great ways to actually even see your electric meter turning backwards during a nice hot summer as the solar panel generates your own electricity. Uh, Here you can get a tax credit of 30% off the cost of the solar hot water heater or solar panel up to about $2,000. Again, that's only limited to two years. Well, um, these sound sound pretty good. Um, What uh, what do you see in here that uh, is not good for consumers? Well, two of the big things that are not good for consumers are the fact that Congress basically ignored two really important opportunities to save consumers tens of billions of dollars every year. Uh, The country really is going to see no relief from oil dependence, no relief from high gas prices, because Congress decided not to improve the fuel economy of our cars and trucks. If we had just taken conventional technology and required automakers to improve fuel economy from today's 24 to 40 miles per gallon, consumers could be saving $80 billion a year by 2020 on gas bills. So stacking this up from the consumer's uh, perspective, uh, how does this bill compare to, uh, say, past energy policies or, or other incentives and credits that were already in place? 
Well, this energy bill moves the ball forward a little bit for consumers, but we still got a lot farther to go. Even on the electricity side, consumers could have been saving nearly $30 billion a year. That's over $200 a household in 2020 if we had required more renewable electricity. So it's a small step, but overall, the package is a move in the wrong direction. It increases our dependence on oil and increases our reliance on fossil-fueled electricity. David Friedman is research director of the Clean Vehicles Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks very much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on. Now, I'm sure you've got a soft spot for the town you call home, but would you call it an urban utopia? Is it hip? Is it smart? Is it packed with adventure? The latest issue of Outside Magazine says such places really do exist. It lists towns building smart communities, reviving city centers, and making outdoors play part of everyday life. Outside senior editor Diana Delling helped compile that list. Diana, thanks for talking with me. Ah, thanks for having me. So you call these towns uh, hip, smart, packed with adventure. I'm wondering, uh, how how does one measure hipness? Because I've always wanted to know. For us, hip meant places where things were happening, places where there was some buzz about what's going on, what the citizens um, are doing, what the governments are doing. Everyone's working together in these towns to make them better places to live, and that's what really attracted us. Who made the list here? Give Give us a few towns on the list. Okay, well, we've got Chicago, Illinois, Portland, Oregon, of course, a long-standing, utopian, forward-thinking town. We've got Fort Collins, Colorado, Charleston, South Carolina, Davis, California, um, Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, what did you learn about what made those towns the way they are? Is it a particular um, mayor who's pushing things in a a direction, or is it a a general uh, ethic uh, among the, the community there? It was both, really. In some cases, mayors were really leading the way. In Chicago, Mayor Daley. In Salt Lake City, Mayor Anderson. But it wasn't. It can start with the mayor. The mayor can push agendas. The mayor can bring up ideas. But I think for cities to really take off and become more livable, it takes involvement by citizens, businesses, government officials, really everybody involved. And that's what we saw in these cities. Um, let's let's talk about an example. Uh, uh, being able to bike to work or uh, bicycle for recreation seemed to be a pretty important thing in, in your measurements here. I'm someone who's been as a bicyclist on the on the business end of a car bumper a few times, and um, maybe it's just the repeated head injuries talking here. But I'm wondering, is there a way to make cars and bikes get along? How have they done it? These towns. A number of ways, not necessarily a safety issue, but a bike safety issue was addressed by the city of Chicago with their Millennium Park bicycle station. The city has an indoor facility so that commuters can store their bikes during the day. They can even take a shower um, and get bike repairs while they're at work with this facility. And that's really innovative and really encouraging to get people out of cars and biking to work. Hmm. A town like Davis, California, is very dedicated to having a network of paths that take you almost anywhere in the city. Even new developments in the city of Davis are required to connect to this network of bicycle trails. You know, I think there might be a connection here. In, in Davis, uh, uh, California, you have a local joking that uh, rush hour is just before 7 o'clock in the evening because that's when everybody's heading out for these committee meetings of various uh, do-good organizations, community improvement organizations that they're they're involved with. No, no coincidence, I'm guessing, right? No, it, it all seems to be connected. When you get people interested and involved in improving their communities— Things start to happen. Hmm. Um, You know, the transportation bill, this big highway bill that just passed Congress, 
understand $25 million going to uh, Columbia, Missouri for new uh, bike and pedestrian trails. Do you see a hopeful trend here? Do you see that, uh, goodness, is, is the federal government getting hip? Is that what we're seeing here? I hope so. I hope it's a good sign. Um, I know that in the state of New Mexico, we're also um, in the process of putting in a light rail system that will connect the city of Santa Fe, the city of Albuquerque, and some of the southern communities. Um, I think it's a great trend, and I definitely hope we see more of it. One of the uh, measures that you include here is uh, how much a house would cost you if you want to move there. And, of course, that's also a sort of indirect measure of the economic vitality of an area. And most of these, it seems to me, are fairly well-to-do. Is that what we're really talking about here is just well-off places that have a lot of disposable income for recreation? Not deliberately. I agree that many of the median home prices are a little bit on the high side, as home prices are throughout the country. I don't think that a well-to-do community necessarily means the place will be more livable or more interested in improving its quality of life. Diana Delling is senior editor of Outside Magazine, and its August issue lists the utopia towns of the U.S., livable places in the U.S. Diana, thanks for talking with me. Oh, thank you. Coming up, grazing on public land, new rules to keep those doggies rolling, and more. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Across the American West, thousands of ranchers graze livestock on public land. The ranchers pay fees to use the land, and many ranch families have been doing so for generations. Now, the Interior Department's Bureau of Land Management, the agency in charge of millions of public acres, has new regulations on grazing. The BLM says the new rules will preserve open space while keeping ranchers on the land and rural communities intact. Some scientists and environmentalists fear those new rules will harm rare species and water quality. Some wonder whether livestock belong on public lands at all. Clay Scott reports. Cattle have grazed the ranges of the West for over 150 years. It's hard to find a landscape here that hasn't had cattle on it at one time. Much of this rangeland, over 160 million acres of it, is federal land administered by the BLM. These lands are largely sage steppe, a landscape that for a long time was overlooked and underappreciated. In fact, it was considered unsuitable for anything but grazing. Now it's increasingly being recognized as both extremely diverse in plant and animal life and extremely fragile. This growing biological understanding means ranchers and their grazing practices on these lands are coming under greater scrutiny. Nathan Finch is a southwest Montana rancher. The pictures you see and the, and the the people that say that, you know, public lands are all grazed down to the dirt, well, here you go, it's not, you know? I mean, it's really not. Finch takes me on a tour of his ranch, both his private land and his BLM allotments. To my eye, the sagebrush and the grasses beneath it look vibrant and healthy. The rolling sage flats rise to meet the Big Hole Divide Mountains in the distance, this is crucial habitat for threatened sage-grouse, and a tiny creek running through the place holds rare West Slope cutthroat trout. Finch says he grazes conservatively and that he's careful not to leave his cattle for too long on one pasture. He resists the notion that any outsider might be able to take care of the land better than he's doing. I try as best I can to be open-minded and try to find the things that work for us. And I know that 
a lot more guys to be successful in ranching are having to do the same thing. I don't think you can just keep doing it the way Grandpa did it. And uh, I think there were grazing abuses in the past, and I'm sure there are still some now. And I'm sure some people would say the way I'm doing is a grazing abuse, but, I mean, I'm not going to try to answer to those people. The real pressure that ranchers face is economic, and with that comes the threat of subdivision. Many ranchers say, and Westerners agree, that the phenomenon of subdivision is changing the landscape and culture of the West more rapidly and dramatically than any other factor. Baby boomers by the thousands are buying up ranchettes for second homes or for retirement in every Western state. It's partly to address these pressures and help keep ranchers on the land that the Bureau of Land Management has eased some restrictions on public land grazing. The BLM would not be interviewed for this story. Instead, spokesman Tom Gorey read this statement. Regarding the uh, grazing regulations that we're developing, uh, we're not going to comment on litigation which has been filed. We would say, though, that we're in the process of finalizing the new rules. Uh, When that job is done, uh, we expect a rule that's going to be good for the land, good for people. It reflects our commitment uh, as an agency to multiple use management of the public lands, of which grazing is a part. And we think when all is said and done, this is going to ensure the health and productivity of the public lands, both now and in the years to come. But the BLM's new grazing regulations have proven to be controversial. Two BLM biologists who voiced concern about the revised rules quit in protest, saying their analysis had been turned on its head, and that the new rules could be harmful to wildlife and water quality. Tom Lustig, an attorney for the National Wildlife Federation in Boulder, Colorado, echoes those concerns. Under these regulations, the right of the uh, public to participate in that, the uh, obligation of the Bureau of Land Management to notify and consult with the public on many critical on-the-ground decisions is eliminated. Up till now, BLM experts have had the authority to make on-the-spot assessments of range health, removing cattle if they saw a piece of land or stream was being damaged by grazing. Now they'll be required to collect extensive data. Under the new regulations, the range manager is going to have to set up a monitoring program and to periodically take data, perhaps over months or years, to back up his determination that, yeah, this stream is completely beat up and it's beat up by cows. What the new regulations do by inserting this monitoring requirement is create a very high hurdle, perhaps insurmountable in some cases, for BLM to actually enforce these performance standards for healthy rangelands. The result, says Lustig, is that management of the BLM rangelands will fall primarily to ranchers. I don't dispute that ranchers are often good stewards. What I'm concerned about is they have a narrow interest. And by law, the Bureau of Land Management is required to manage these federal lands for multiple uses. And those multiple uses may include things that have nothing to do with livestock grazing. While the BLM rules may represent a move toward making life easier for public land ranchers, another trend is running in the opposite direction. For many critics of public land grazing, the harmful impacts of cattle on arid rangeland are beyond dispute. Deborah Donahue is a professor of public land law at the University of Wyoming. She's also the author of The Western Range Revisited, a book in which she advocates removing livestock from public lands. We need to keep in in mind, I think, that ranching is not going to end if ranching on public lands ends. 
When cattle are grazed on arid land over a period of time, she says, the impacts on the land and on native biodiversity can be severe and lasting. You keep stressing the land, you keep disturbing it, and pretty soon you reach what the ecologists will call a threshold. And that's a point of no return, essentially. The conditions, the vegetative and soil conditions in that spot will change irrevocably, um, or at least irrevocably under natural processes, meaning you could remove the cattle, it will never go back to the way it was or could be or should be. But there's no consensus when it comes to the science of range management. Some specialists say grazing can be beneficial to diversity. Jim Hagenbarth is a fourth-generation rancher with BLM allotments in both Montana and Idaho. For a biologist or a hydrologist to go out on a piece of of range and just blindly say that uh, there is a problem and livestock are the problem and they have to be removed immediately is not good range science. There's a lot of things going on out there, including drought, uh, wildlife, that determines what the condition of the range site. And so uh, you don't make snap decisions out there. Hugo Turek is a Montana rancher and former sociology professor whose ranch is a haven for wildlife. His cattle graze on both BLM and private land on the edge of the Badlands south of the Missouri River. This is a rich and diverse landscape with flat grasslands plunging down into steep sage-covered breaks, a year-round stream lined with cottonwoods and willows, and in the distance, Square Butte and the Highwood Mountains. There are elk here, deer and antelope, and countless species of birds, plants, and small mammals. Turek sees no contradiction between managing the place for wildlife and managing it for cattle. I don't really differentiate between my land and the BLM land. It's all one landscape. You know, when you look out across this place, you know, you're looking across the landscape. And by protecting my place, I'm protecting the BLM and vice versa. You know. And so there's a mutual benefit. And these boundaries are artificial. They really are. Though critics say public land ranchers could survive without federal lands, Turek says he needs them for his economic survival. With that need comes a deep respect. My view of the public lands is, yeah, we have to share it with it. You know, we ranchers have to learn that this is really the public's land, not mine. I have the privilege of grazing out here, and I have the privilege of looking across this landscape every day, you know. And it's difficult to look across this and say, you know, this isn't mine. You know, this belongs to the public. But once you can say that to yourself, once you can accept that and realize you're out here as a privilege, not a right, it makes it a lot easier to deal with. We have to learn to share with the public. If we don't, we're not going to be here. There's a lot more public than there are us. And I think we can both be on that landscape and both use it. The conflict over the public rangelands of the West is not likely to be resolved anytime soon. It is clear, however, that the public's awareness of these lands is growing and that, increasingly, the public will demand a say in how they are managed. For Living on Earth, I'm Clay Scott in Montana. From grazing out west to global warming, pesticides to painkillers, public policy questions often come down to one group's science versus another's. And increasingly, those disputes include accusations of junk science. Studies are attacked as invalid or inconclusive and can leave the public with more doubt than answers. David Michaels looks into this trend in a recent supplement to the American Journal of Public Health. He argues that much of the squabbling over scientific certainty is the result of a concerted strategy by those who want to avoid government regulation. 
Michaels teaches environmental and occupational health at George Washington University. He joins us from NPR Studios in Washington. David Michaels, you title your article Manufacturing Uncertainty. What does that mean? Well, what I'm talking about here is a strategy of essentially creating doubt. Uh, The tobacco industry figured this out 50 years ago by attacking the science behind the relationship between cigarette smoking and, say, lung cancer, they were able to keep producing their product and selling it and killing people for decades. That strategy has now been widely disseminated, and it's used by polluters and manufacturers of dangerous products who understand that they can slow down regulation and defeat it in many cases by attacking the science. You know, I feel like backing up a little bit to gain a better understanding of why this approach works. And it it only works because there is a certain degree of uncertainty in science. And why is that? I mean, we look to science to answer questions for us. Why can't they remove the doubt? We're doing studies on people and on animals. When we do a study on animals, we can control the laboratory procedures. We still have to extrapolate that to humans, so it's never a perfect sort of, if it causes something in animals, it causes it in people. When we do studies in people, you know, we're, we're thinking about exposures that occur over the course of 20, 30 years or more. Everybody has multiple exposures in their lifetime, and so the answers are never precise. And so we have to, scientists and regulators are faced with the question, how do you weigh the evidence? How do you make the best judgment based on the best current available evidence? I guess the comeback to that is, at what cost? At what point is it just so prohibitively costly to eke out these uh, extra measures of public safety? Absolutely right. And we have to, that's one of the things you think about, but that's rarely discussed because a lot of the corporations have realized that once you get to the discussion of how much risk are we willing to allow, they've lost the debate because it's already been acknowledged that their product causes the the outcome in question. So instead, they focus on the science. In fact, your question is the better one, saying, okay, there's a risk here. How much risk will we allow at what cost? And, and that's a perfectly reasonable discussion to have, and it's reasonable for regulators to say it will cost too much to prevent this problem. Um, another thing uh, we should probably point out here is um, I- industry groups aren't the only ones playing this game. I mean, uh, environmental and, and public health advocates will also be somewhat guilty of this, won't they, when they want uh, 100% assurance that, say, uh, a pesticide is, is not going to be harmful. I, I agree, and I think there are actually examples where environmental groups have pushed far too hard and, and really made that demand. The difference is these groups you know, have far less power than the chemical industry and, in fact, right now the White House in making decisions. So I think we always have to look at this and we have to look at, you know, what are the demands being made. But right now, I think the threat to public health comes from the industries and, the, unfortunately, from the White House. They're essentially demanding certainty when they can never have it. So this was an industry strategy, by and far, to to fend off the, the federal government attempts to, to regulate things. But as I understand, part of your, what you're arguing here is that this has kind of hopped the fence now and has become part of the way the, the government is doing its work. Is that correct? It's unfortunate. I mean, it really, we see it really in the last few years. There's a very um, telling memo written by Frank Luntz, who was the uh, political consultant to the Republican Party, who wrote a memo to the Republican Party essentially saying, how do you win the global warming debate? He said... Um, Voters believe that there is no consensus about global warming within the scientific community. Should the public come to believe that the scientific issues are settled, their views about global warming will change accordingly. Therefore, you need to continue to make the lack of scientific certainty a primary issue in the debate. So is there evidence that uh, uh, people in positions of power took Mr. Luntz's advice? 
Well, it just came out a few months ago. There was a very telling revelation that a fellow named Phil Cooney, who was the chief of staff of the White House's Council on Environmental Quality, actually rewrote a report written by the Environmental Protection Agency using exactly this strategy, changed the words around to say there's a lot more uncertainty than the EPA um, suggested, and essentially neutering the report, saying we can't do anything because there's so much uncertainty. Um, You know, in addition to the Frank Luntz example, you see this becoming, I think, institutionalized is the word that you use. How has this strategy worked its way into the way federal government does its business? Well, it's done through a number of ways. The um, most important one probably is through some very obscure legislation um, called the Data Quality Act. A couple of lines snuck into a very large piece of legislation that had nothing to do with it a number of years ago that essentially requires federal agencies to set up a system where anybody who doesn't like not just um, regulation but anything the government says and forces the government to spend a lot of resources defending itself. And in many cases, it really it's discouraging agencies from taking on new issues because they know they're going to end up in court. What do we know about the, the lineage of that uh, little piece of language there? Where did the Data Quality Act uh, come from, anyway? Well, it turns out some tobacco experts did some research, and we have an article in this new supplement of the American Journal of Public Health where they actually find that the, um, the tobacco industry was very much behind it. Uh, they were very concerned about the EPA's assessment of environmental tobacco smoke as being a cause of lung cancer among people who didn't smoke. The whole secondhand smoke thing. That's exactly right. So they were the ones who wrote it, and they were the ones who pushed it. But they did through some consultants, and only through a great deal of research were their fingerprints found. And that's an interesting article. I think people might want to take a look at that. David Michaels is a research professor in environmental and occupational health at George Washington University. He was contributor and editor on a recent supplement of the American Journal of Public Health. It looks at how science is used in public policy debates, and a link to the supplement is available on our website, LOE.org. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Just ahead, pictures from an execution a photographer's work documenting the illegal trade in rare animal parts. First, this note on emerging science from Sarah Williams. When marine biologist Hector Douglas arrived on Kiska Island in Alaska to study crested awkwits, the first thing he noticed was the bird's pungent smell. Now, that observation could lead to a potent new insect repellent. The crested awkwits on Kiska Island spend their days on the ocean, feeding on tiny plankton. When the birds return to their nests in the evening, the citrusy odor produced by specialized glands can be detected for miles. Years later, Douglas was studying another population of awkwits on St. Lawrence Island in the Bering Sea. He noticed the smell again, and this time something else. The mosquitoes, ticks, lice, and other pests that bothered the island's other birds didn't bother the awkwits. Douglas guessed this was related to their tangerine-like scent. To test his hypothesis, he brought auklet feathers back to his lab and analyzed their chemical makeup. He dabbed samples of the isolated chemicals onto filter paper and attached the paper to his hand. Then he put his hand into a cage swarming with a breed of particularly aggressive mosquitoes. The mosquitoes stayed away, even flying to the other side of the cage to avoid the smell. For auklets, the scent could be a survival advantage, cutting down the chance of diseases that insects carry. For us, Douglas's discovery could lead to a new and powerful commercial insect repellent. 
The next step, says Douglas, is to do some testing to determine if his aqua spray would be safe for humans. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Sarah Williams. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, online at MOTT.org, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924, on the web at KRESGE.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education, and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, from vision to innovative impact, 75 years of philanthropy. This is NPR National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Scientists are learning more about just what comes out of the tailpipes of our cars, trucks, and buses, and just what it does to us. The more they learn, the more they warn against putting schools next to freeways. Microscopic particles of soot and metal are concentrated near busy roads, and they're linked to a host of health problems, including heart disease and asthma. California was the first state to keep new schools at least 500 feet from freeways, and the idea appears to be spreading. Kai Plascon from KNPR in Las Vegas reports. Highway US-95 in Las Vegas is a typical urban freeway. Overcrowded. When Nevada started to widen it 10 years ago, the Sierra Club stood in the way. It sued, saying the state and federal government didn't properly consider the serious public health impacts of more vehicles. The legal gridlock lasted a decade, until last month when the Federal Highway Administration conceded that freeway pollution might have a negative impact on health. Administrator Mary Peters announced a settlement with the Sierra Club. We will monitor vehicle emissions at several major highway locations around the country, helping us to better understand the nature of these transportation emissions. As part of the settlement, the federal government will monitor seven harmful pollutants, including benzene, acrylene, formaldehyde, diesel exhaust, and tiny particles as they float from the freeway to neighborhoods nearby. At Fife Elementary in Las Vegas, children are playing less than 100 feet from US-95. As part of the settlement, the school district will get $3 million to install advanced air filtration systems, make its buses less polluting, and move play equipment away from the freeway. Sierra Club attorney Joanne Spaulding negotiated the deal. What they're doing that's really new and exciting is that they're, they're doing actual monitoring to measure the levels of pollutants next to the freeway at a... Um, and in the background and at uh, distances in between and then inside the schools and they're testing an air filtration system that's designed to reduce um, air toxics from highways. The Sierra Club didn't get everything it wanted. It dropped a demand for a mass transit corridor along the freeway. Still, it considers the settlement a new tool against freeway expansions nationwide. It's using the same health arguments to oppose projects in Utah, Texas, Wisconsin, Illinois, Ohio, and Maryland. We are beginning to see a trend. Bill Becker directs the Association of Local Air Pollution Control Officials. And it's just a matter of time until those exemplary actions catch on throughout the rest of the country. So I predict within a couple or three years, you'll see the same kinds of ordinances almost everywhere. One place that's already examining freeway pollution is Denver. The Department of Transportation there is going beyond federal requirements and instead using public health data collected at schools before approving two freeway expansions. Las Vegas is also considering an ordinance similar to California's. 
one that says new schools should be set back from freeways. For Living on Earth, I'm Kai Plaskon in Las Vegas. Flip through the current issue of Mother Jones magazine, and you'll come across some startling black-and-white images of rare Asian animals. You'll also see images of some of the people making those animals even more rare, poachers and dealers in the illegal trade in wildlife. Photographer Patrick Brown trekked through southern Asia to take those pictures, and he's with us now to talk about them. Mr. Brown, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much for having me. You've been following the illegal animal trade for almost three years now. What is it about this that holds your interest as a photographer? Well, I focused not so much on the animals themselves, but I photographed more on the social implications of this trade. Um, I wanted to try and feel and, and get the information across to the viewer of what it's like to be these hunters, be these poachers, actually switch the roles around, because these guys don't really know what they're doing. So I'm trying to show the viewer a story of what's actually happening on the coalface, so to speak. It does have a very kind of documentarian feel to it. it like you said, these aren't uh, beauty shots of, of wild animals. Uh, one here that uh, kind of jumps out at me, it's a, a stall at what looks like an open-air market, and the table there is covered with uh, skulls and different animal parts for sale. Where is that, that photo, and, and what's going on there? Um, that's on the... On the northern border of Thailand and Burma, an, an area that's quite infamous, and that's the Golden Triangle. What that person's just selling bits and pieces, basically. Um, just trying to make a few bucks to buy some food, to pay rent, do all the things that we all do. What, what sort of things would be on sale there? What, what would you pick up there? Not that you would. Well, you can pick up anything. I found a rhino, a complete rhino horn, which is extremely rare to find a complete one. And they wanted eight and a half thousand US, which sounds a lot. But if I was a dealer, by the time I got there to the, say Hong Kong or the Middle East or Singapore or something like that, one hundred and twenty, one hundred and thirty thousand US. Hmm. So it's serious money at stake. How do you get access to take these pictures? How how do you get to where you need to be to take these shots? When I first got involved in this project, I I thought okay. It's a very subdued subject. It's, it's a dark element of society. How am I going to get into this? So I went to places like the Thai-Burma border, and I would pull out my camera, and I would secretly try and take pictures. And they were onto me straight away. They, they knew exactly what I was doing. It wasn't the camera I finally figured out. It was my body language. I knew that I was doing something that they didn't want me to know that I was doing. And I just kept getting nowhere with it, n- absolutely just banging my head against a brick wall, so to speak. So what's the, what's the correct body language? How do you communicate that, uh, that they can relax? You just act like you're taking a, a snapshot at a picnic or something, or what? Basically. I went in there with, I thought, how can I disarm these people? I thought, hang on, what I'll do is I'll show them all my, my tools, I'll show them who I am, I'll show them my camera, and I won't deny the fact that I'm taking pictures. And I went in there with and I sort of all guns blazing, lights flashing, a quite a loud T-shirt. I dressed quite touristy-like, and a camera, an old camera around my neck, and that was it. They were disarmed. 
And I would say, wow, this is really... We don't have this in Australia. We don't have bears like this. And, we, wow, you've got a bear's pose. And, and then the guys say, well, you think that's really weird? You should see what's in the back of the shop. And that's, that's how I got into the back of these places. Well, you know, uh, another image that really stands out in this spread in the magazine, it's um, what I would call a perfectly normal-looking office, except uh, there's a severed tiger's head on the, the top of the desk. And I take it this is an office in Scotland Yard of uh, some officer who's in the effort to try to intercept these smuggled goods as they're making their way around the world. Uh, uh, how good a job do you think uh, do you think we're doing at that? As good a job as we're doing in the uh, drug trade. <laughs> which, which I'm guessing is to say not so good. Not so good at all. Um, with the political climate at the moment, customs and uh, the authorities are looking for arms at the moment. Then it goes down to people, then people contraband, and then from there it's animals. Animals are at the bottom of the, the runner. The developed world does not consider them a serious threat because they're not actually... It's not part of their constituency. So we, we, I say we, I say as a, a developed society, we don't take it seriously. Hmm. But meanwhile, we tell developing nations to take it seriously. Well, do you intend to stick with this? I mean, if part of your goal here is to use your photography as a form of public education, uh, it doesn't exactly sound like you're hopeful. I'm an optimist at the end of the day. Let's, I'll, I'll cut to the chase. I am going to stick with this. I think it's going to turn into a large portion of my work for my life, actually, is actually going to be the animal trail in Asia. The other element to that is the people who are interested in my work are pretty much already converted. They already know something about it. What my plan is is actually to take these images and take them to places like Burma, take them to Cambodia, Laos, India, Nepal, actually take it to the places where the poachers are and get the stories translated into the local language or the local dialect. That is going to do more than somebody buying a book on a, a bookshelf in New York. Patrick Brown's photo essay on the illegal trade in Asian wildlife appears in the July-August issue of Mother Jones magazine. Patrick, thank you very much for joining us today. Not a problem, Jeff. Thank you very much. Much of the demand for those animal products comes from the world's wealthy nations. Government agents in the U.S. have an uphill battle trying to intercept those smuggled goods at airports and boat docks every day. Ever wonder what happens to the stuff they do catch? We did, and we sent reporter Eric Whitney of member station KRCC in Colorado Springs to a Denver warehouse to find out. Donnie Sprague of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service opens a huge motorized cabinet. Inside is a collection of fur coats to rival anything in a New York boutique. This, is, uh, this particular coat here is, is mink. And you can kind of tell that when you look at the coat, it just has this incredible sheen that is really hard to mistake. A price tag hanging on the coat says $3,995. But Sprague isn't going to sell it, or any of the dozens of other jackets hanging here, made of leopard, jaguar, or lynx, and other animal skins. Whoever tried to sell them in the first place got busted for dealing in illegal animal products, and their loot was sent here. 
to the National Wildlife Products Repository in Denver. We have a wide range of items, including uh, shell and coral products, reptile products, a lot of worked ivory, trophy animals, traditional medicines. You know, wildlife trade is a global issue, so we're seeing these items from all over the world. A wide range of items doesn't even begin to describe what's inside the gray walls of this 13,000-square-foot warehouse. Shelf after shelf is stacked to the ceiling with animals and animal parts, from the exotic to the relatively mundane. There are huge cardboard boxes labeled butterflies. One shelving unit holds about 300 sea turtles, either whole stuffed animals or enormous shells. The heads of rare big cats stare mutely from inside plastic bags, their sharp teeth bared, their hides rolled up behind them. A recent seizure brought in about 26,000 seahorses. These were all destined for the medicinal trade. They've been dried and um, just would be sold in various markets as a raw ingredient to some type of medicinal. Sprague says that the repository has more than a million seized items. Most come from the 16 designated ports of entry where wildlife products are allowed to enter and leave the U.S. Some items, like the huge rhinoceros head mounted as a trophy, are seized because trading in endangered species is illegal. Other products, made from common or domesticated animals, are confiscated for paperwork violations. Sprague opens a newly arrived shipment of about 300 pairs of boots. These were seized at our border between the United States and Mexico at El Paso. And there are some endangered species violations as we do see sea turtle and crocodile species. But many of these are ostrich, which basically requires only a declaration at the time of import or export. Sprague says she once heard that cowboy boots make up the majority of all seizures, and it's not hard to believe. There's shelf upon shelf of pointy-toed shoes made from the skin of just about every creature that's ever walked, slithered, or swam on the planet. The fancy ones leave the snakeheads mounted right over the toe. But the repository does more than just warehouse all this exotic booty. It sends a lot of it to schools all over the country in a program called Suitcase for Survival. Here at the Denver Zoo, Vice President for Education Jackie Taylor opens one of the suitcases that she helps distribute to teachers. Let's see, we have all different kinds of items in here to uh, share with the kids. We have um, golden pheasant bird feathers. We have an ivory bracelet, a cowboy boot made from uh, sea turtle skin, a tarantula paperweight, Every year, Taylor trains about two dozen teachers how to use the suitcases, which come with a teaching handbook and fully scripted slideshow. The goal, she says, is to provide good information and let students decide how they feel about the global wildlife trade. The kids are encouraged to touch and feel the samples, which Taylor says really has an impact. Yes, it does, because they, they continue to talk about it. Here's a crocodile handbag. You know, why would you do this and... What's different from this handbag to a handbag that is made from a synthetic fabric? The Denver Zoo is just one of several zoos, schools, and museums across the country that accept products from the repository. Other items are used for research or by law enforcement in sting operations. It's hoped that the education is having an impact on demand for illegal wildlife products, 
but every year the repository continues to see an increase in the number of items sent to it. For Living on Earth, I'm Eric Whitney in Denver. Now an update on last week's story on the ivory-billed woodpecker. We told you about skeptical scientists challenging the video evidence that the bird once thought extinct had been rediscovered. And we heard from birders who insisted their sighting was for real. Tim Gallagher stood by his claim that he saw the ivory build last year in an Arkansas swamp, and he told us he had more proof coming. You know, I, I don't know if I should talk about it before it's public. Actually, at the American Ornithologist Union meeting in uh, Santa Barbara next month, we'll, we'll have some evidence. We'll have it present our acoustic evidence. Well, I'm sure a lot of people will be listening. Yeah. <laughs> Among those listening was the leader of the team of skeptical scientists, Yale University ornithology professor Richard Prum. Mr. Prum, what did you hear? Uh, we were uh, sent some wave files or electronic files of two recordings, and the recordings included two behaviors or two sounds that are very distinctive and very characteristic of uh, ivory-billed woodpecker. The first was a series of Kent calls, which is sort of a nasal ank, ank, ank. The second was a set of these characteristic double drums, which sound like ba-bum, uh, maybe one, uh, one pounding and then an echo of it right immediately after. So uh, when you listened to that, did you hear proof? I found them to be clear and convincing. And when I heard these recordings, I was first immediately struck by how naturalistic they sounded. And that was part of the reason why I found them so convincing. Now, you know, I imagine this is kind of a weird position for you. Your, your uh, paper that you were working on, you had to withdraw. But at the same time, as a, as a birder, you must be just tickled to, to be wrong here. I'm ecstatic about the fact that there's... Uh, you know, convincing evidence for the existence of the bird. And uh, it was really because I wanted to have this experience in a confident or sure way that I pursued a, a, a skeptical path. Now, this has really been about the science and, and what sort of data are required before we can confidently conclude uh, that the ivory bill woodpecker still exists. Well, Richard Prum is professor of ornithology at Yale University. Thanks very much for talking with us. Thank you very much. The new audio evidence that persuaded Prum to drop his challenge won't be available for the rest of us until it's presented at an upcoming scientific conference, but it probably sounds something like this 1935 recording of an ivory-billed woodpecker. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Chris Ballman, Jennifer Chu, Ingrid Lobet, and Susan Shepard, with help from Christopher Bolick, Kelly Cronin, and Michelle Queter. And we wish a fond farewell to departing crew member Jenny Cecil Moore. Thanks, Jenny. And good luck. Our interns are Max Thielander and Sarah Williams. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Dean composed our themes. And you can find us at loe.org. Steve Kerwood returns next week. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, 
and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. This is NPR, National Public Radio.